Welcome to the Talking Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Will Cheshire. And in this podcast, I speak with impact-driven founders and share their real-time stories about how their solution has a positive impact on society. This is a show for founders, investors, and all individuals looking for some positivity and optimism as you hear from people working hard to help better our society and our planet. You can expect to learn about some awesome new products and services in this show that will bring you more hope in our quest to solve some of society's biggest issues. Let's dive in to this week's episode of the Talking Solutions Podcast. In this episode of the Talking Solutions Podcast, I'm speaking with fellow podcast host, Elena Kersey. Elena's podcast focuses on speaking with purpose-driven women making a positive impact on the world, and it is called The Purpose Effect. Elena brings a unique perspective to the show and to you all as she focuses primarily on entrepreneurship in the Asia Pacific region, something we haven't talked about much on this podcast. And we're talking about key differences, trends, and what people, specifically female entrepreneurs, are working to solve in the Asia Pacific region through entrepreneurship. So let's hear from Elena in this week's episode of the Talking Solutions Podcast. Elena, thank you so much for coming on this episode of the Talking Solutions podcast. And I am really excited to dig into our conversation today, a fellow podcast host, uh, if you will, with the Purpose Effect as well. So how are you first and foremost? I'm great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really, really excited to have this chat. Yeah, it'll be really interesting, especially because you're on a different side of the world that I'm accustomed to when I'm talking to people as well. So you're over in uh, Malaysia, correct? Yes. So I'm in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, um, and I have I'm half Malaysian, half um, Kiwi from New Zealand, and I've lived in Asia Pacific pretty much my whole life. Um, yeah, so I'm very interested in the social impact space in this part of the world, and um, yeah, that's how we connected, right? Because we were talking about the different perspectives in our different sort of areas of the world. There's a lot of crossover, but I think there's also some things that are really unique here. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to understanding what those unique perspectives are in the kind of the Asia Pacific region with the entrepreneurship, especially the social impact space, and specifically with with women founders as well on that front. But let everybody know about your podcast. Tell everybody about what the purpose effect is, who you talk to, what you talk about, and share some information for the listeners as well, because I'm sure they're going to want to go check it out after uh, hearing what you got to say in this episode. Yes, thank you. Um, so the purpose effect is a series of conversations with women working in the impact space on purpose um, and purpose in business. Um, so the kinds of women that I talk to on the purpose effect are female founders of social enterprises, women working in the not-for-profit space, but also journalists and activists campaigning for social justice or environmental justice. Was that something that was intentional on your end to kind of have that diversity of guests or has it all just kind of happened organically in the sense of like, OK, well, this person, a journalist actually has something really interesting to say about this as well. And, and kind of that thought process, if you will, like how did that kind of come about? It did. It did happen organically. I mean, I have to say when I started making the podcast and uh, writing episodes and producing episodes, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing, and um, it did grow very organically. Many of the conversations I've had have been because particular guests have said, you should really speak to this person um, because they have a really interesting perspective on X. Um, and 
And it grew from there. So recommendations from guests, sometimes recommendations from viewers. Um, people would reach out to me. Uh, I'm quite active on Instagram, would reach out to me on Instagram and say, hey, have you thought of uh, talking to this person? So that's kind of how it grew. Um, and I'm particularly interested in the woman's perspective on some of these issues, partly because, you know, typically uh, women haven't been at uh, haven't had a seat at the table when decisions around um, uh, policy making or decision making in the social space or in any business space is made. But also, particularly here in Asia, when it comes to social issues, women are really leading the change. And I'm seeing a lot of innovation and a lot of really interesting work happening. And I think that those are stories worth sharing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I know you also have kind of a bit of a global perspective as well, having spent some time in the US. And then I know that you were just recently in the UK for a little while and things of that nature as well. So I know that you definitely kind of have that perspective and an entrepreneurship style lens on that front. So just within that and in, in Within the Asia Pacific, you know, Southeast Asia, especially, and you mentioned the women are seem to be the ones leading the charge for kind of that social impact space as well. What are kind of some, some similarities and differences that you see amongst the founders, if you will, in the Asia Pacific region versus maybe uh, Americans or Europeans or Latinos or whatever it might be? I think the first thing to recognize is in Asia Pacific, particularly in the more developing Asian countries, the majority of entrepreneurs and female entrepreneurs are small business owners. So they are women who are running businesses out of their homes. So sometimes those are cooking businesses or childcare businesses. And those businesses have been set up um, purely to make ends meet. In Southeast Asia, in general, small to medium enterprises make up the majority of businesses. So 97% of all businesses in the region are in that sector, and they employ the vast majority of workers. So I think it's interesting and useful to understand that context first, that we're not talking about big, well-funded startups predominantly. Many of these businesses are small, and even some of the the bigger businesses that I've talked to, some of the social enterprises that are reasonably well-funded from a regional perspective, they're still, they still struggle to continue to do their work. Um, many are very heavily reliant on fundraising. And COVID was really meant that a lot of these businesses took a big hit because fundraising from many sectors, private sectors, dried up. So I think it's um, important to realize that, that we're talking predominantly about smaller businesses. But I also think that that is the space where we can see real change in the region. And that is the real opportunity. If these smaller businesses can be better funded or access more markets and more consumers, then you have the potential to lift a lot more people out of poverty. Yeah. And, and I would even say, too, that when they are kind of that small, you you can kind of get that more hyper focus on the local impact of their own individual communities of the people that they might be working with in there. And then, you know, that can inspire change kind of at that smaller level. And then maybe you kind of get a snowball effect. Is that at all kind of the case or the truth of it that you see? Or am I a little off base there? Well, we certainly are seeing snowball snowballing in certain 
places. Um, for example, the zero waste movement in, in Southeast Asia in particular. Um, I'll talk specifically about Southeast Asia because in Australia and New Zealand, I think the zero waste movement has been going on for a little bit longer. But here I would say that the, the, the market leaders today in sort of zero waste and reusable products were entering the market around 2015, 2016. And at that stage, there was limited buy-in, I guess. Um, the products, the zero-waste concept stores and the zero-waste products were a lot more expensive. So it was difficult to get buy-in. It was difficult to produce them at scale. But now it's becoming mainstream and driven a lot by young Southeast Asians. I think young educated Southeast Asians really see the value in products that produce less waste, have less environmental impact and products that are sourced locally. So definitely now I'm, we're seeing with consumer behavior, people are very conscious of buying products that are locally sourced and have a lower environmental impact and are not plastic, or if they are plastic, reusable. Yeah, and within the, the zero waste movement and stuff, a lot of the companies, I think uh, as well, like I even hear some some from America that target it there, because expl explain a, to the listeners a little bit that may not know, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but in Southeast Asia, that's where we a lot of plastic ends up over there, a lot of waste in the ocean ends up over there that is really uh, to the fault of the other side of the world and things of that nature over in the Americas and Australia kind of filters up a little bit, right? That So just kind of explain how that's kind of an issue and how that kind of impacts the local areas as well um, in the Southeast Asia regions. Yeah, I think um, there's a, a few parts to it where the fact that a lot of plastic ends up in, on beaches and in oceans in the Asia Pacific. I'm not exactly sure what are the scientific reason, re, sorry, scientific reasons for why trash is collecting in these parts, but it's very visible. And it really impacts communities for whom tourism is a big income generator. And there are many, many communities in Southeast Asia where tourism is really, really important. I mean, in Thailand, in Indonesia, here in Malaysia as well. Um, so for those communities who are dependent on tourism, they want clean beaches. They don't want um, all of this trash to be deterring uh, tourists. But beyond that, there is also there has also been the situation of recycling companies in uh, the Asia Pacific buying plastic from wealthier Western countries and taking it to Asia to recycle. Many of these plastics don't turn out to actually be recyclable. Um, again, I'm not an expert here, but not all plastic is easily recyclable. So that plastic that isn't recyclable gets stuck in landfill or thrown into the oceans. So it becomes a sort of depository, not just for plastic that ends up here organically because of uh, ocean movement, but also plastic that was brought here and not recycled. Um, so yeah, it's just, I guess, another situation of wealthier countries exporting their problems to lower income countries who then struggle to deal with it. Right. And they don't really have the resources sometimes to deal with it and things of that nature as well to put in a bad position. So yeah, thanks for explaining that a little bit because I know sometimes, you know, people hear about the waste and stuff like that, but a lot of people don't put that connection of like, oh, I, what are you talking about garbage in front of the beaches? I don't know what you mean. Like, I don't see that ever, you know, but I know that that is a, an issue in Southeast Asia and in that region, if you will. So thanks for kind of like 
providing that perspective on that front. I think it's also important for people to realize that when they come to Asia, if they see lots of trash around, it's not because local people don't care about their environments or they don't care about trash. They're not actually the largest consumers of it. Um, this is not just an education issue. Education is part of it, but it is also because all of this trash ends up here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's no fault of their own half the time. So, I mean, again, that's the, the, the important part. I'm glad you're able to explain that a little bit. But I want to get back into what I know that you know a lot about and the expert in, uh, which is, you know, the entrepreneurship and talking to all these founders, whether it would be uh, into the, the cleanup space when it comes to zero waste companies or when it comes to um, the smaller enterprises. And there was one thing I wanted to ask about that smaller enterprise, because you mentioned the challenges of COVID uh, as well and, and kind of what that meant to people too. Uh, but I'm curious in general, you know, since you've talked to so many, what are some common themes and challenges that you see amongst these women founders uh, out there that they're trying to overcome and kind of work through? That's kind of been a reoccurring theme uh, that you hear from them on a regular basis. I want to take a quick break from the podcast to share more about Elena's podcast, The Purpose Effect, and the value of what you can learn from Elena and her guests. The Purpose Effect focuses on speaking with purpose-driven women making a positive impact in the world. You can hear from a wide range of guests speaking about topics including human trafficking in Asia, human design, activists against gender violence, and to even the Web3 space and bringing more inclusion for women in the financial realm. It's a show that will broaden your perspective, and it's available to be listened to on all major platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So let's dive back in to this week's episode of the Talking Solutions podcast with Elena Kersey. Particularly where social enterprises are concerned. Um, so social enterprises are businesses where the social problem that they're trying to solve is um, funded by the business. So one example of a social enterprise um, founder who's been on my podcast is a woman called uh, Deborah Henry. She founded a jewelry business called Fujila. And Fuji, the jewelry that is produced and sold by Fujila funds a education program for refugee children in Malaysia. Um, Malaysia is a like a transit hub, I suppose, for refugees. They are here while they're waiting resettlement in other countries through UNHCR pathways. But while they're in Malaysia, they have limited access to uh, public education and many public services. So Deborah has set up a school for them and also a higher education program, and the jewelry business funds that. Um, Fujila was hugely dependent on... Um, private sector funding and donations to fund their education program. The jewelry business on itself didn't sustain it. So scaling your social enterprise to a point where it can actually fund um, the social work you're trying to do is a challenge. And then during COVID, lots of um, public funding dried up. The other thing that happened during COVID is many social enterprises pivoted because social enterprises who were working in spaces like education or finding um, employment opportunities for low-income women. The big issue during the time of COVID was food insecurity, particularly for people who were living and working in this space where they their jobs were already insecure. They worked on day wages. So if they turned up to work, they got paid. If they couldn't because of lockdown, they couldn't get paid. So food insecurity was a huge 
problem in Malaysia. And many, many social enterprises who are working in other spaces, like making bags, for example, um, employing low-income women to make bags or to make jewelry for the purpose of education, pivoted to try and address the food insecurity need. So that is one issue. Funding is always an issue for social enterprises. And funding to a point where you can scale your business so that it can be um, self-sufficient and it can fund the project on its own. Yeah. So when you hear about the funding and stuff, and you've mentioned that a few times and where it's at, where is that normally kind of centrally located? Is it in one specific kind of country? Is is it in specific cities in each country and things of that, or in each country, I should say, uh, and things of that nature as well? Or where is that kind of source coming from for the most part? So there's definitely government support in a number of countries in Southeast Asia, Singapore, Malaysia, and Indonesia uh, in particular, for startups to set up in those countries. So there's definitely government-backed incentives for people to establish businesses in these countries. However, the priority goes to tech businesses, not necessarily social enterprises, or businesses at that smaller scale. But when it does come to Um, VC funding and private equity funding, uh, Singapore is really leading the region in terms of where uh, those VCs are headquartered. Okay, very interesting. And then I guess on top of that as well, I mean, do you know much about, um, you know, because I I hear this all the time, you know, a recent guest of mine on the show, Melinda Moore, you know, in the women's health space, you know, she has Coyote Ventures and they're really focused on women's health and investment in there. But, you know, and one of the questions I asked was, oh, yeah, that's interesting. I've never heard of an investment fund, you know, focusing only on women's health. And she's like, well, yeah, that's because like 98% of the people in VCs are men. I was like, oh, right. Yeah. Okay. No wonder. Of course, I wouldn't think about the women's health, right? And only 2% of the funding goes to women on that front. So in in Singapore, is that a similar trend? Uh, I mean, obviously, historically, so yes, but is it a positive direction right now? Are you seeing kind of more money being allocated to some of these women founders and stuff like that? Or is it still kind of struggling through that overall issue where there's still, it's just kind of stuck in limbo type deal and no kind of uh, progression? Well, I think it's still early stages. Certainly, we're seeing a lot more um, VC funds that are aimed at supporting female founders and funding more female-led businesses. So that trend is definitely happening, but it's really, really early stage. So it's difficult to see at this point what the impact is. Um, I was really interested to listen to your episode with uh, Melinda Moore because last year was like a bumper year in Southeast Asia for um, VC funding in general. 175 billion US dollars was invested in the region. And a little over 17% of that went to female-founded businesses, um, which is not much, but I think it's more than the numbers that Melinda was throwing out there. So that feels encouraging. Uh, And then the other issue is whilst these new female-focused funds are emerging, still 77% of the decision makers in the venture capital space overall are men. But, you know, I'm hopeful. I'm an eternal optimist about these things. I think you have to be. <laughs> you and me both. You and me both suffer from that curse. I don't know about you. Sometimes that uh, gets annoying. You know, you get a little roll of your eyes sometimes from people occasionally. But, uh, you know, I think it's a better outlook to have on it. So I'm optimistic. And, and that 17%, yeah, I mean, I, I'd have to look. I don't know the number, so I don't want to say it. Obviously, 17% is still too low uh, as a whole, but it is a progression. And, and as you said, kind of over time, it's in the early innings, if you will. 
and, and kind of moving forward in the early stages. So hopefully that's something that kind of moves forward and changes a little bit on that front as well. Speaking of optimism, that's something I want to kind of ask you about amongst the the founders that you talk to and uh, the small business owners that you talk to and the journalists and things of that nature as well on that front. Do you generally get a vibe that, you know, these people are, are you have that kind of positive outlook within their kind of company, right? That, or do they kind of have like a more tapered mindset of it? Like, Hey, this is a huge problem and kind of like that. Like what's kind of the attitude uh, that you see from, from these entrepreneurs and everything attacking these problems and, in uh, that part of the world? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think in general, it's optimistic. There has to be optimism. One guest said, I have to have hope because if I don't have hope that, that things will change, that I can actually make a real impact, then what am I doing this for? So there's definitely that feeling of I've got no choice but to remain hopeful. But yeah, it's it's a struggle. I think you know, when I'm talking to founders, particularly of social enterprises, small social enterprises, where they're very connected to, and they know intimately what the lives and experiences of the the woman or the refugee children who they're trying to impact are like, yeah, I, I think it can be really emotionally draining because you are trying so hard to improve the lives of people. And, um, getting enough money to create something that's sustainable to drive that. I mean, sustainability in, in these sectors is really important as well. Um, relying on government handouts or grants is just not going to uh, move the needle in the long term. You need to get businesses to a point where they can continue to fund and ideally even generate a profit for um, the projects that they're trying to fund. Right. I agree. It has to get to a point where there's some self-sustainability, um, if you will. Like it, it's great to kind of get that assistance to help and kind of get yourself going. But, you know, it's another thing is coming in and trying to create a business model that's going to create that profit so that you can continue to go. And more importantly, uh, you know, show a model to other companies that they can follow and kind of create this little cycle that goes around on that front as well. So I think that part's equally as important too. Within that as well, Lane, I'd be curious to, to know too, because we've talked a little bit about the region as a whole. Do you find specific countries that kind of get more innovation or enterprise more than others within that area? Or is it kind of like a tier group where you have like a couple countries in it, tier A, tier B, tier C type of thing? Yeah, that's also an interesting question. I hadn't really thought about it that way. I guess um, certainly... When it comes to businesses who are innovating in the tech, uh, tech space, in the Web3 space in particular, there's a few founders that I've spoken to recently who have set up businesses that are trying to create social or environmental uh, impact using blockchain technology. And Singapore is uh, very much, I think, the leader in the region there because there's a lot of government support to try and build uh, Singapore as like a web three uh, innovation hub for the region. So that's, um, that's happening on one level. When it comes to sort of smaller social enterprises that are funding a very particular community or have a community initiative. So I'm talking about businesses like Fujila or businesses like Not A Daydream in the Philippines where they're making um, they're making bags and through making bags, not only um, sort of celebrating local traditional um, 
arts and weaving, but also employing a lot of women in a very impoverished and vulnerable part of Manila. So those kinds of businesses doing interesting social impact um, work on a smaller scale, you're, you're seeing a lot of innovation in Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, and Cambodia. Um, so I guess depending on the scale of the businesses where we see the difference and where we see the, the interesting innovation happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really interesting. And, and you've made a couple couple points, a kind of intriguing question that I have for you here now. So you've mentioned a few times, you know, kind of the difference in low income areas and things of that nature. Obviously, we see low income areas in, in every part of the world. Every city is going to have its higher income and its lower income. But what is the inequality gap like there within some of those major cities? Is it kind of, would you say, exasperated more so than, than in other parts of the world where, you know, the the rich live really, really well, but the poor live very, very, you know, in, in not so great conditions. Do you see that being a difference or, or kind of what is that like within that sector uh, in order to get these people those better jobs and, and opportunities for the social impact work? In big cities like Jakarta, Manila, Bangkok, there is a huge income gap. The wealthy are extremely wealthy um, and the uh poor are living mostly below the breadline. So there's huge income inequality in some of these big Asian metropolises. But I'm starting to see this more in the West as well. I mean, income gaps are widening everywhere, um, not just in Asia. I, in fact, I think in Southeast Asia, in some, in some areas, they're closing slightly. Um, whereas, you know, in the West, I'm seeing income gaps widening um, in countries which have good education systems, good social support, good healthcare support. So that to me is almost more worrying um, and makes me concerned about what the future could be for Asia um, when income inequality is widening everywhere in the world. Yeah. And what do you mean by that? What it could mean for Asia on that front? Like what type of ripple effects would you see from that? Well, I guess um, in the first instance, uh, many small projects in Asia were very reliant on um, aid funding from other countries. So um, there's been a lot of US, uh, US aid, Canadian aid, um, European aid, as well as aid from the World Bank, um, the Asian Development Bank in the region. It's could be difficult if um, income inequality increases in the West for those governments to continue to be able to pledge the same amount of funding for projects on the other side of the world. The other issue that you see in the development space, um, and when I say development, I'm talking about um, development projects that are funded by uh, international aid organizations or government-funded aid organizations is in many cases, the funding can only be guaranteed for the term of that government. So uh, in New Zealand, um, we have elections every uh, three years. So the term of uh, I, the term of that government, you can't pledge money beyond when you know that your government is going to be able to guarantee it. And three years is sometimes not enough time to be able to affect real change, you need to be able to guarantee funding for 10 years. And I think that could become increasingly difficult. 
Mm, yeah, that's a really interesting perspective and point to that as well that I haven't really thought about on that front too, because you know how it can be correlating like that in three years is it's not enough time that you don't even really know if it's going to work at that point. I mean, you can see kind of trends, but there's not enough really data to see what exactly is working, what's implementing, what things can be improved on, iterating and things of that nature as well. So that's an intriguing, very intriguing thing in that front in terms of the government reliance on there too, as well with the outsourcing and everything. So interesting front and you make a great point. I mean, the West is certainly seeing a big gap in the income inequality. I mean, we see it right here in the US. I mean, I look at the city where I grew up in the city of Seattle and things of that nature as well. I mean, <laughs> it's, I think, I think it came out it's like the 8th or ninth or something like that most unaffordable place, you know, a place like Miami now with housing, yeah, Miami now with housing compared to the income is ridiculous. Like it's almost, I think it's the average salary is like 46,000, but the average home's like 600,000. So it, it doesn't really, yeah. And that's where we're going to see some issues on that front as well. So a great point on that front there. Um, you've talked a little bit about some of the trends that we've seen a little bit. And this was kind of something that was intriguing to me that kind of stood out that you made a comment on earlier where it seemed like a lot of these smaller, the social enterprises, those small, what they try to accomplish is really kind of the demand of what is needed at that specific time. Um, they seem like they're very adaptable in what they do and, and they're very open to kind of pivoting and things of that nature as well. Because you had mentioned the one thing where um, they found that food insecurity was an issue. So then they immediately went to food insecurity and then there was the company with the refugees. And it seems like they're kind of covering all sorts of angles, but you see the different kind of pivot. Is that kind of true or that they're, they're pretty adaptable and flexible in their solutions? We'll take a quick time out and here I'd like to announce my new LinkedIn page I created for the podcast to share more content and provide more value to you all in the form of impact-driven investment news, social entrepreneurship trends, and more content for the podcast. It's my goal to continue to grow the community and share solutions that positively impact society through entrepreneurship and ESG investing. I've slowly been growing a great community of purpose-driven leaders, and I'm excited to have another medium to share their work and success. So you can follow by connecting with me on LinkedIn, William Cheshire, and checking out the Talking Solutions podcast page. Now, let's get back to this week's episode of the Talking Solutions podcast with the host of The Purpose Effect, Elena Kersey. Yeah, I think so. Um, they're small, they're lean, and um, they're able to, to pivot and innovate quickly. But I also think it's important to recognize that this happened because of a global pandemic, which changed everything about the way many businesses operated and many businesses, even in other industries, um, had to pivot, uh, had to change the way they operate. Yes, definitely. I think many of these um, businesses operate in a really lean and flexible way, which allows them to be quite innovative. Um, but I think in general, there's this spirit of innovation here in Southeast Asia and in the Asia Pacific in general. Um, many industries haven't had a lot of support from government. Um, it's been difficult to scale things up. And there is a culture of small business operations, which I was talking about earlier. So I do think that there's a little bit of a culture of you know, see a problem, fix it, see an opportunity, grab it. In New Zealand, we'd call that number eight wire mentality. You know, um, when you don't have much, you just use what you can and, and try and fix things or, or solve problems. So I think we get a lot of innovation that way. And one thing that I thought was really interesting, um, one particular really small innovation that I wanted to highlight is 
there was a, a woman who she actually founded um, two accessories brands. And she is based in Kuching, which is in um, Sarawak, which is part of the Malaysian side of Borneo. And um, Sarawak was hit really badly with COVID. The case numbers in that part of Malaysia were really, really high. And food insecurity was also a big problem for all of the reasons that we talked about earlier. But what she did was um, she managed to fundraise a lot of money for food boxes, but she also convinced a lot of businesses, including supermarkets, online supermarkets, and businesses like hers, accessories businesses, which were not operating in the food space at all, to put um, food boxes as products in their uh, e-commerce sites. So she understood e-commerce. So she said, you can very easily just put this box there. When you go through your checkout, a little notification pops up. Would you consider donating 30 ringgit, which is about $8 US dollars for a food box that will feed a family for a week? Many people would. And it was a very quick and easy way to direct funds from a consumer who probably wouldn't go out to donate, um, might not go out to donate in another way. It's a very easy way to do that. And I think um, making it easy for people to make that decision was very, very smart. Oh, genius. I think that's fantastic. I mean, I think convenience is everything for the most part when it comes to consumerism, right? Like it's one of those things where I think a lot of people aren't intentionally good. I mean, I think a lot of people would donate if they were prompted to donate. It's just they're not everybody lives their own lives. They have their own problems. You know, I always, you know, perspective is a big thing that you could be filthy rich and it seemed like everything is great, but you're super famous as an actor or whatever, but you still have your demons and your perspective and everything based on your problems, right? So people just kind of forget about it. So that type of solution, I think, is wonderful because it just kind of prompts go, oh, yeah, of course, $8, donate, feed family. Absolutely. That sounds wonderful. So I think that's great, which leads me into my next question. I want to start talking a little bit about some of the favorite guests that you've had uh, on your show. And I trust me, I know that you probably wish you could say them all and, and all that type of stuff as well. But what are some guests that, you know, really have kind of stood out to you in terms of the solutions that they're providing and, and what they're kind of doing and some women that are, you know, doing a lot of really great things in terms of the business world? The woman who I just mentioned who uh, set up Kuching Food Aid, her name is Chantelle Lee. Um, she's a graphic designer and accessories business owner. And she basically, through placing these um, food boxes on her e-commerce sites and convincing other supermarkets and other brands to do the same, has basically built a not-for-profit called Kuching Food Aid, which had now has brought um, local government private sector, big private sector businesses, so conglomerates that own supermarkets as well as property developers and NGOs together to try and solve social problems in that part of Malaysia. So I think that is amazing that she she is an extremely persuasive person and she's an extremely engaging person. And if you listen to her talk, you will understand how she has managed to do what so many people have tried and failed to do, which is bring these people together in a room and actually get them to work together long term. So I think she that was extremely inspirational. Another business which I thought was really exciting is a business called Investera. Investera is an investment education platform. And the goal of Investera is to change the face of investing, starting with growing more and educating more female investors. So I think that is exciting 
to see a business like that that is very rooted in um, Asia Pacific and talks a lot about Asia Pacific investments that someone like me who lives and works here can make. Because I, in the US, um, there's, a, uh, there's a business called Elvest, which in addition to being in an education platform is also, um, uh, you, can, you can purchase investments through them. So they're, they're like a bank, but we don't have anything like that in Asia. And I, as a in potential investor in um, Malaysia, can't invest in, in Elvest. So I think that business is really interesting. And then I think we're seeing some really interesting things happening in the Web3 space, particularly around circular fashion, um, but also more transparent carbon trading schemes. So um, Brie Yek, who is a co-founder of CarbonFi, um, which is a Web3 business, which is trying to enable more transparent carbon trading and also incentivize businesses to purchase carbon offsets um, by recording these transactions and what your credits are going to purchase on the blockchain. So yeah, so those three three big ones, um, there are so many, but if I had to yeah, pick three off the top of my head to share, I think those are really interesting. Yeah, they're really interesting and they're great. And speaking of off the top of your head, how can people listen and get more information on those episodes if they heard about these three companies and these founders and they want to learn more about it? Oh, so I'm in most places you would listen to pod podcasts. I'm on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, CastBox. You can also um, find me on my website, which is thepurposeeffectpod.com. And um, I'm on Instagram, The Purpose Effect on Instagram. So look me up and please send me messages. I love it when people send me messages about things that are exciting them or impact businesses that they would like to hear more about. That's awesome. And Elena, can you uh, give you the opportunity to, to share anything else that you feel like that maybe we missed and it didn't cover on the, on the show and the podcast or anything of that nature as well that you'd like to talk about on that front? I think, yeah, I'm very interested in businesses who want to fund female businesses. So I know that you speak to a lot of uh, investors and v managers of VC funds on your podcast. So I encourage some of these people to look at Asia when you're trying to make your uh, decisions about who you want to fund and what kind of businesses you want to fund, because there's a lot of innovation happening here. Um, there's a lot of opportunity. Um, there's not enough money. There's not enough competition either. So um, yeah, come to Asia. Innovation at its finest opportunities abound over in the Asia Pacific. That's awesome. So I'll certainly be keeping that in mind as I, I talk to some investor VC startups, all that type of good stuff as well. And that's why I wanted to have you on the, the, the podcast, just to get a little bit more insight into, into what's going on specifically with women and then in the Asian Pacific region as a whole, just the, the startup culture the space at a small level within the uh, small businesses too, and all that type of good stuff. I feel like we learned quite a lot today kind of about what's going on on that front. So I, I think that that's pretty interesting. And, and I appreciate you coming on to talk a little bit and sharing your insight with some of the founders and the entrepreneurs and, and the business of impact uh, going on in the Asia Pacific. So thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Will. I've really loved coming on here and having this conversation with you. Thank you so much um, for giving me the opportunity to spotlight some of the things that are happening in um, this corner of the world. Yeah, we'll have to do it again. We'll have to do it again. Yes. Yes, we will. Perfect. That is Elena Kersey. She is the host. I was so used to saying founder. I almost said founder again, the host of the Purpose Effect podcast. And you can find her all across social media. As mentioned before, you can find her on Instagram at the Purpose Effect with the periods in between the 
or in purpose, in purpose, in effect. And then, of course, you can find her on her website, thepurposeeffectpod.com, available on all of the major platforms that you would expect it to be, including Apple, Spotify, all that good stuff. So go ahead and check out the Purpose Effect podcast, learn more about Elena and what the she's got going on, the fantastic work of what's entrepreneurship in Asia, in the Asia Pacific region, region on that front, specifically and potentially in Malaysia and other places as well. So that's going to wrap up this edition of the Talking Solutions podcast. As always, if you want more information, you can go ahead to our website, chestech.com backslash Talking Solutions podcast. And you can also find us on Instagram at Talking Solutions podcast. And then, of course, if you enjoyed the episode, do me a favor drop a review, right? A a good review, if you will. Uh, Subscribe, do all that fun stuff and sign up for the newsletter as well. Got a new newsletter out promoting some positive news, great solutions and kind of the impact investing world as well. But that's going to wrap up this edition of the show. And until next time, I will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Talking Solutions podcast. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode and check out all of our guests on our website at cheshtech.com. That's C-H-E-S-H-T-E-C-H.com to learn more as we continue our mission of supporting impact-driven founders. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Talking Solutions Podcast and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Talking Solutions. If you liked this episode, I'd really appreciate a review and a recommendation to a friend as we focus on highlighting these great founders and individuals providing solutions to societal problems and bringing optimism into the world.